I was trying uh, to check your age. I couldn't find it anywhere. <laughs> so I couldn't find it on Google. Yes. So you know what? Should you, baby? So you know what I did? You know what I did? I went to chat GPT <laughs> and I was like, what? I'm not going to spend hours checking uh, the what age. Yeah. And ChatGPT says, I'm sorry, my knowledge does not allow me to find this fact. Wow. He's like, Top secret. Exactly. <laughs> Seriously. and welcome to season three of Fractured, our informative podcast that talks about refugee crisis, so-called refugee crisis, events related to it, the good practices, but also the challenges related to the situation of refugees in the world. We have this special focus on Europe, but we also speak about the situation in refugees' home countries. And this is season three. You can listen to season one and season two on your favorite podcasting platforms. And there are some changes that we're introducing with season three. So the first change is that right now you can not only hear us, but you can also see us. So we encourage everybody to go on YouTube or Spotify when you can see our wonderful studio and production house in Athens, Greece. But the second important change is that I am getting a co-host. So here to introduce my co-host, Rashid Ghali. Thank you so much. Rashid, would you like to say a sentence or two about yourself? Uh, Rashid from Western Sahara. I'm here to help the podcast and spread uh, a good information for the world because we, we know that there is a lot of uh, misinformation. So I'm here to help with that. Rashid is also one of the forces behind uh, making us visual. Apparently, I'm a dinosaur in this area. I prefer to listen while doing my morning yoga or going for a walk. But here's Rashid and Davud behind the camera, Majid, Suda and Doug, who got me into um, recording the visuals as well. I know, I know it is good for the podcast and we're going with that. Guys, season three is live, and one thing that is not going to change is the fact that we will be bringing you wonderful guests, experts in their uh, area, people who lift certain events that we want to discuss here and can bring us deeper to the situation uh, of uh, the countries we will be speaking about. So without further ado, we are going to introduce the first guest of season three, which is wonderful Sheila Omi. Thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Sonia. Uh, Sheila is a director, writer, producer, and actress. I I'm sorry, my American husband tells me that I should not say actress. I should say actor in order not to discriminate potentially. So Sheila is an actor a star of Apple TV show called Tehran. And the fact that Sheila is a wonderful actress is without any discussion. But the reason why we invited Sheila is not necessarily for her acting skills. We want to talk to Sheila about the situation in Iran, her home country. Uh, and we're going to do it in the context of the anniversary of death of Maksa Mini. But before we get to this point, Sheila, I would like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your past, your journey. You were born in Iran. You lived for most of your life in the United States. What are your connections right now with Iran? Uh, first, Sonia, I would like to um, send my heartfelt uh, love to our brothers and sisters in Morocco. I can't imagine what they're going through with um, all the losses in the earthquake. And uh, yes, so I was born in Iran. 
and um, I was 10 years old when the revolution in Iran happened. I was um, fortunate enough to uh, be born into a family that by the time I was born, they were very affluent. My dad had worked very hard his entire life. He was, um, long before I was born, he was a colonel in the Shah's army. And this was back when the army in Iran really cared for the people and really cared for the women, regardless of their uh, religion or, you know, um, sex or sexual orientation. They really uh, were there to serve. And my father was a huge philanthropist and he built hospitals as he uh, started to gain uh, wealth from a company that he had started. Uh, called Vima Company that still is uh, working today. Of course, we uh, we don't own it. Um, everything changed with the revolution. But uh, he, when, as he started to acquire wealth, he started uh, building hospitals for uh, people who couldn't afford hospital care and uh, schools for uh, families who couldn't afford to take their children to school in uh, places like the north of Iran. And... and um, Here's the thing, as a 10-year-old, look, I'm not a politician, I'm an actress. I love the human condition. It's one of my passions is humanity. I'm a human being. I feel like one of the most important things that we as human beings could do is to work on ourselves. We need to have a jihad on our demons and... Um, I feel like as human beings, we, we come with a set of problems already built in genetically and from life. Um, but what I remember of, this is before the revolution happened, I noticed as a 10-year-old a, a couple things. Um, one was, I remember one day I was in the north of Iran in this place called Ramsar, and we had a beautiful villa in Ramsar, in Ramsar that... Uh, included a little river that went into the uh, into the sea, and I was playing. I used to catch turtles and play with them and let them go, um, and little snakes that were really sweet little snakes. I, I loved animals. I wanted to become a veterinarian one day, and um, this young man and his friend. They must have been about I don't know sixteen, seventeen. Uh, they come up to me and they're like, "Oh, hey, what are you doing?" And we're talking and and. Um, they said, where do you live? I said, well, I live in Tehran, but this is our villa and, and this little river is our little um, river. And he said, well, uh, soon Khomeini is coming and this, your house is going to belong to all of us. And that made me realize that there was some propaganda already having started from, like, I didn't even know this name Khomeini until a couple of years later when I actually heard the name and I'm like, oh, this is the, the man they were talking about. And then another thing in my 10-year-old head during the time was that you know, I have four sisters and a brother. They're all much older than me. I was a total accident um, that like my mom was embarrassed that she was pregnant with me. I was I came so late in their lives, but they had all kinds of friends. And, and my dad, by the way, even though he... Um, uh, even though he was a capitalist in that he had gained a, a tremendous amount of wealth and worked really hard for it, he had very deep leftist beliefs, which is why he was so great to his employees. Um, and um, and he would always, well, I, I, I don't want to take too long, but just loved everything uh, about leftist ideology as far as the, the social structure and how they take care of um, everyone. And so my, uh, my sisters and my brother had friends, all kinds of friends. And what I noticed is that whenever their leftist friends would come over, um, my 10-year-old brain, I didn't like them. I feel very differently about them today because of things that are going on in the U.S. And I see how, um, you know, there's fascism is happening in the U.S., unfortunately. And I see how valuable um, the, the leftist um, uh, wisdom is to help us here in the U.S. But back then, I just didn't like them. I always would notice how the, the, the women that called themselves leftists were 
just didn't take care of themselves. They didn't look very beautiful. My sisters were all so beautiful. And, and I, I sensed a little bit of jealousy. And again, it's my 10-year-old self. But when the revolution happened, and years later, I realized that these leftist kids who uh, were going to school, um, that, that didn't realize how lucky they were because the Shah was allowing them to go to school and paying for a lot of their education. Um, but I've, in hindsight, I've, I, I, I felt like for a long time that these kids, they, they were so naive that instead of doing the work on themselves and dealing with their own problems and the, and the problems of their families and the problems of themselves, their own narcissism, their own whatever that we all have, that they were putting the magnifying glass on society and, you know, the Shah and being leftist and, and they were so brilliant, they're learned, they're so educated. Um, but unfortunately, their form of education was just, um, had nothing to do with working on themselves as human beings, which is um, what I feel is important. And then, of course, as you know, uh, with the revolution, the um, fundamentalist Islamists were standing by. So they used these naive kids of the left who started the revolution. And the Shah left because he cared for them too much. He didn't want to kill them. So he thought, okay, I'll just leave the country and things will calm down. But the fundamentalist Islamists took over. And what they called a, um, today they call it a bloodless revolution, started off bloodless because the Shah didn't want to spill blood. But when the fundamentalist Islamic clerics took over, they executed hundreds of thousands of people and tortured them in the worst ways. And this I know because many of these people were beautiful friends of my father's who were amazing philanthropists who had given so much to Iran and, you know, and building cities and caring for. And um, my dad was on an execution list. So we happened to be in the U.S. by accident. Um, uh, my dad was doing some business and the Islamists took over and we could never go back. Um, because if we went back, my dad would have been tortured and executed like all of his friends were. And um, they had the audacity to um, publish a book with all the pictures of my dad's friends, their bodies, after they had been tortured and dead, to show and to, because this is how they reigned, was to reign with terror, to scare everyone from standing up against them. And so, and they have been reigning with this um, terror the, the people of Iran for, you know, for almost 45 years. Mm -hmm. This is something, if I may in, uh, interrupt you, this is something that was actually a shock for many people who watched Tehran. Uh, people believe that it's not real, that this is how it happens, that when somebody is executed, there's a picture of him in a newspaper. Uh, sometimes there's um, uh, something on television of people uh, hanging uh, from like different masts or, or other things. So people didn't really people of the West, they do not even realize that this is a normal everyday uh, thing for Iranians. Yeah, and it certainly was. I, I don't know if it still is today, but it certainly was during the 1980s and, you know, a, a good portion of the 1990s. So, Sheila, you mentioned that when you were 10, you witnessed like the old Iran. So, but now, because people, when we speak, even our like, generation, we know Iran after the revolution. So we don't, because I remember my, like my brothers and sisters, they were older than me, and they were telling me that rich people were going to Iran because it was like the equivalent of Dubai right now. So how do you think this shift became like this from this Iran to Iran of where women don't have even basic rights, in your opinion, like, and why? Yeah, Iran before the revolution was such a beautiful place, and I feel so fortunate that I was able to experience it you know, up, up until I was 10 years old. Um, I feel like, you know, what the, um, it's, it's the innocence of, of, the, uh, of the kids who revolted and also the innocence of the Shah at the time that they didn't realize when they um, 
allowed the government to be, because it was only supposed to be taken over by the um, fundamentalist Islamic clergy for a little while. Um, and they even had people vote for it. And they said, oh, you know, you leftist kids, uh, you know, our religion is just like your ideology. So why don't we just take over the government for a while until we all decide what should happen to it? And these kids didn't realize the evil actions that the, that the clergy was capable of, and neither did the Shah. They just didn't realize. And so they, they, they thought, okay, they, they handed it over, and the, the clergy then... Uh, turned around once they were in power and they um, incarcerated and tortured and executed all of those leftist kids, you know, all the Marxist kids who had um, revolted in the first place saying that, well, you don't believe in God the way we believe in God. So, um, and they really, they, they took the country back 1500 years ago, which, um, which religions do. And here's the danger of religions. And, and I tell you, it isn't just what's happening in Iran with the Shiite Islam. It's all over the world that I, I feel like, look, if you have a religion that gives you hope and it gives you peace and it gives you respite and it gives you, um, it makes sense of death for you, good for you, bless you. Um, but don't try and control me and everyone else because of what you believe in. And this is what is so dangerous when, um, when a religion takes over a government. I have, you know, you, you mentioned with Tehran. I'm so grateful to have been in Tehran because I've made such wonderful new friends from Israel. They're such beautiful people. But I see that they are dealing with the same thing. They're also dealing with the fear that their government is becoming religious and they're going into the streets and fighting against that and saying, look at Iran, is this what you want to happen here? Um, we um, uh, are in danger of that happening here in the United States. Religion has its place and it should have its place, but that place is not in the government. Mm -hmm. yeah. And religion is very frequently uh, being the justification, the reason for governments doing absolutely horrible things, one of which was the death of Max Amini, which we would like to speak more about today because we're recording this podcast just a few days before the anniversary of her death. We will release it. It was not intentional. Uh, we're, releasing, we're releasing the podcast uh, every time on Thursday. And it will be Thursday, the 21st of September, which would be her birthday. So Max Amini died just a few days before her 23rd birthday. A Kurdish girl came to Tehran to visit her brother. And while visiting, she is stopped by the morality police. Uh, the justification for it is the fact that she didn't cover her her good enough, well enough, and apparently that she was wearing two skinny jeans. She stay, she's being taken to a police station where after several days she's being taken to a hospital and on the 16th of September she's being declared dead. Police claims that she had a heart attack, but the witnesses who were arrested with her testify that she was actually badly beaten by the morality police just because she was resisting the, um, the arrest and the, the insults uh, at the station. As an outcome of this, big protests start in Iran. People go on streets, demand change. The hijab became the symbol of this um, movement. But those protests are not only about the hijab, right? Right, they're not. Um, they're about so many problems that have been plaguing Iran because of a religious fundamentalist government ruling this beautiful land. Um, that, that first of all, uh, women's rights have gone back. Women have been oppressed for these 45 years. They, they have um, no rights, and least of all, the right of what to wear and, and how they are allowed to um, uh, show up in, in public. Um, the, the economy, here's the thing. Um, whatever the, the, the clergy who took over, like Khomeini, um, whatever 
wasn't part of their uh, worldview, whatever wasn't part of their book, part of their religion, they felt wasn't important, wasn't important for anyone. So they've let the, the environment go. They've, um, the economy, Khomeini said uh, when he came to power, he said, oh, e economists, uh, economy is for donkeys. So they got rid of all the PhDs in economy, all of the great minds of the, the economists of the day by either killing them or taking their jobs away from them. And they gave their jobs to clergy who had no idea about economy. So they've... Um, uh, destroyed the economy of Iran. Today, young people can't get married. They don't have the money. They don't have the money to get married, um, to, to buy homes, to have a life. Um, the, the kids are so bright, so educated. And once they come out of college, there's no jobs for them. And um, this really, after Mass Amini's death, uh, this uh, a revolution started what, that was led by women. This was the first revolution that I've heard of that was led by women. And these are women that know that they live in a country where if they go out and protest, that they may not be coming back home, that they, they, they will get a bullet. And these, these are women that were um, uh, asking other women to come out in the streets and to revolt. And it was for all these reasons, for the, the environmental horrible catastrophes that have been plaguing Iran, because a government that um, should be, their place is in the mosque, if even there. They've been doing so, so many atrocities, so many evil acts that I even wonder, I even wonder. Uh, you mentioned that like now it's led by women. So you think it's like different. This is the difference between the, the previous protest. And because like, uh, do you feel like it's the same generation are protesting like every time or it's like now or like more aspects of from the, uh, the society are tuning in, especially the ones they were like uh, supporting the regime after seeing like what's the reaction? Like, for example, like more than 500 people were dead and 18,000 arrests. And this is just what the news said. We were speaking to Ellie before, and she said like maybe more and more. So you think like the same generation or like more now people are tuning into this protest? I feel like um, it really started with the Gen Z. It started with the young, brave, educated, smart children of Iran. And by children, I'm, I'm talking about 15, 14, 15, 16, um, to, to 20s and 30s. But um, everyone is up in arms. Everyone is uh, horrified at um, not just what happened with Massa Amini. And also it's important to remember that Massa was, she was a minority, she was a Kurd, and she's also not a Shiite Muslim. Her family was Sunni Muslims. And, um, and, and she was fighting back because Kurdish people are powerful and they don't, they don't take crap from people as, and, um, so people are, it, it shows how much the, the majority of Iranians um, are against the uh, minority that is the, the fundamentalist Islamic um, people that have gotten the, the stronghold in the government. The majority of Iranians love Iranians of all uh, religious backgrounds, of all nationalities. Um, but it's unfortunate that um, right now they are plagued with a government that doesn't, with a government that only respects themselves and no one else. I absolutely agree with what you're saying because I read uh, some statistics uh, saying that basically 72% of Iranians say that mandatory hijab for women should be should not be a thing. It should not be mandatory for women to be forced to cover their hair and only I believe 15% said that yes it should be written in the law that that that, that we should go uh, this direction so so there, there's no actually uh, voice of the people uh, heard in uh, the in the government in, uh, within the regime but what I really wanted to ask you about I guess is the is the possibility of actually winning something of those protests so there were very strong 
um, recommendations or demands by uh, especially students. The, the hashtag uh, we are Iranian students was very popular at some point on all social media. And they even demand uh, demanded uh, Iran being put on the EU terrorist group list. So it's very, very, very strong um, uh, demand. What do you think is actually possible to, to achieve with those protests? I think it's important for everyone. Um, it, it's important for podcasts like this to get out there. Uh, people throughout the world need to know what's happening in Iran. Uh, because the situation in Iran, it's not only oppressive and dangerous for the majority of Iranian people, but it's also dangerous for the world. Part of the reason why the economy is in such a terrible state is because the, the government continues to take money out of the hands of the people who need it and into uh, organizations like terrorist organizations like Hezbollah and um, they fund organizations like NIAC and they fund organizations that push their ideology throughout the world and it's dangerous for the world. Um, and uh, I, I heard that just yesterday the um, the U.S. passed the Mahsa law that is um, going to be uh, holding the people of the IRGC accountable for their atrocities um, toward the um, these people that they murdered. And, you know, they, they don't just murder, by the way, they don't just execute. They, these these uh, men and women have been raped in prison and tortured in horrific ways. Uh, before being killed, this needs to stop. We cannot be living in the 21st century and having a um, government do whatever it wants to people. Um, the world is much more global and, and podcasts like this are important. And thank you so much, Sonia and Rashid, for what you're doing, for getting the world to pay attention. Because it will come, it will come at your own doorstep. You know, even even here in the U.S., um, we're dealing with um, uh, unfortunately a, a rise of fascism, and um, so it, this this is a human issue. We are basically being educated every day by members of our community because so many of them come from Iranian uh, community, the, the refugees who are here uh, in Athens uh, and who were forced to flee. And we are also learning how superficial our knowledge about the situation is. Every day they're telling us something more and educate us. But this made us also realize that if we who are so close to them no, maybe not fully accurate information like like it or they do not really reach us. So and we are really trying to be knowledgeable about th those issues. Then an average European citizen who may not care that much about uh, the situation in Iran, but wants to stay informed, maybe even less information reaches them. Right. So this is one of the goals of the podcasts to spread this awareness. And we will hear from Elif Azlola in the second part, which will tell us even more about how those uh, situation, how the situation here of the refugee community uh, looks like. Yeah, that you would be like shocked uh, to know that many people, they don't know this stuff. They live in their own bubble and they have no idea what's going on. And for us, it's like, oh, this, yeah, it's here. But for them, it's like, and with all like this, like pressure on the, like the government and stuff, like, but the Iranian government are still executing people like day after day from the people they arrested with all that pressure. Do you think like what can be done more? Like, so, uh, of course, like celebrities like you are like helping and spreading the word. But like, what do you think we can do more? Like, like uh, like all of us as a collective, yeah, as a society. Um, keep on spreading the word. The problem is that um, you they need to suffer financially, and unfortunately, that's what's not happening. That's what's not happening. Governments need to wake up and not coddle them and not buy oil from them and not give them money. Um, you know, with what happened in the U.S. years ago, Rosa Parks who um, uh, didn't want to sit in the back of the bus. The reason why things changed in the US is because people stopped riding buses. They stopped giving money to uh, the, uh, they, they stopped buying bus tickets. 
So um, spreading the word is really important, but unfortunately, um, this is something that can only happen if the the Iranian government that is in charge right now suffers financially. But there is also like a risk of turning it into a North Korea, second North Korea, you know, and closing everything and keeping people there. So there is that risk. So they need to be also careful on how they do it because Iran is like, you know, it's powerful. It's not like any other country. They have uh, mass destruct weapons and stuff. So I think they need to do it really careful because there's the people there. They need to also care about the people. Yeah. I know. And, and unfortunately, it is in the hands of the Iranian people. And it just breaks my heart because um, that government is so ruthless and cruel that um, I, I brace myself. Like, um, like, I know how important it is for Iranians to go out and protest, but it just breaks my heart to, um, to know what they're capable of. Because it looks like actually none of those appeals from abroad actually do work. As sad as it, it, it is, and I don't want to end on a negative note, uh, but, but so far we haven't seen many of the executions being stopped. Uh, we saw people spending now a year in jail or, or longer. We, we saw artists being uh, basically denied their right to create. Uh, filmmakers are having a ban on making movies just because they dared to say something that was not 100% in line uh, with the regime. So, so, so many negative things, but maybe let's end the conversation with applauding the Iranian movement right now for their perseverance and push for this change and fighting for themselves. Thank you so much, Sonia, for, for bringing that up because, um, I mean, I tell you, Iran, uh, the, the, it was Cyrus the Great. The, it, it was Iranians who came up with the very first declaration of human rights. Iran um, has such incredible culture, such incredible spiritual um, uh, concepts came out of Iran. Iran is a really important nation. It's got such beautiful people. And um, I know that these people will, uh, goodness will prevail. May love prevail. May goodness prevail. And um, may the uh, Islamic Republic step down. And uh, th those people that are very religious, um, may they uh, experience their religion in their mosques and in their own homes. With those beautiful wishes to Iranian people, we would like to thank you very much, Sheila, for being part of this episode. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Sonia. And I'm Doug. And we're the founders of Refocus Media Labs. Our foundation was created in 2018 to give refugees modern media skills, so badly needed in places like this, Lesbos, Greece. We created a studio here on Lesbos and we are trying to teach people photography, uh, video uh, editing, uh, graphic design, uh, filmmaking, to allow them to enter job markets here in Europe but also to give them a platform to showcase their work. My name is Yasser. I've started to join Refocus in 2019. We were students. We had no idea that we are going to be a citizen journalist one day. We were just coming to classes to learn new schools, just like the new students right now. And we were interested and motivated by taking photos every day, having a camera in our hands and doing something that normally a person couldn't do in the island. What Refocus is doing is serving and teaching students every day two shifts and what they're teaching, photography, videography, it's the skill that they can improve and over time in the future use it to have a job. And her eyes, her face is red on that PowerPoint. The goal here is that this is the start of a career or this is at least the start of a chance for them to have an equitable future. The beautiful thing that's happening is that our most advanced students are some of our teachers. 
and they are showing to the new student who is them just a year ago that this is possible and that this is something that they can push for. It's so crucial, so critical to give those skills and those tools to refugees here to make sure that they are creative, that they are artists, that they are journalists, that they are something more than being just a refugee, this label that the whole world puts on them. What makes me different is that I am able to share my voice with the media, with the skills I've learned. Whenever somebody uh, they take a look at our news, they feel it. They feel that they are in the situation. And welcome to the second part of uh, Fractured, season uh, three, episode one. And in this episode, we will have a representative of this young, fantastic generation Sheila was talking about. Rashid, will you do the honor of introducing our guest? Of course. Our second guest for the evening is the one and only Eli Fazlollah, teacher at Refocus, artist, activist, and an amazing soul. Welcome with us. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Aziza. We are very happy to have Ellie here. Ellie is also a person who always educates us about the situation in Iran, uh, as she is uh, a great activist. Ellie, first of all, you have a tight connection to Sheila because you work together on the set of Tehran, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, we are working uh, first. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, we are working together in Tehran series, but in different scene, but we met each other in Tehran series. So, Ellie, you live in here, you're working in Greece. Yeah. So, if you don't mind, can you tell us about your story? Uh, about my story. So, I was born in Tehran and grew up in Tehran, raised up and study in Tehran. Basically, I, I'm living in Tehran because it is my beautiful and amazing city. So after that, uh, because I born in a really, really radical religion, traditional family. So I, I decided to leave my country because it wasn't possible for me to live there as an artist and special as a girl because uh, you know basically in the situation of Iran don't allow you to be yourself first and to be artist and I was a girl so it's getting worse okay yeah mm -hmm. so I understand uh, how, what is your situation to hijab and this law on hijab, if I may ask? So you're not wearing hijab. I think ever since you came to Europe, you decided to uh, drop it. You're a very colorful person. You're an artist and this artistic soul is emanating from you basically uh, every step of the way. Um, what do you, what do you think about this? Like uh, we were talking with Sheila that the support for hijab is very small in the Iranian society, right? What is your opinion on that? You know, if I uh, basically if we are speaking about the situation of Iran, I would love to say my generation or after me, basically we don't believe Islam or we don't wear hijab as they like the, the family or family do that or practicing in Islam or uh, like my mother my older sister uh, or older brother or family they are practicing kind of Islam but our generation or one generation or after me we are not really religion people or any religion generation and we are most educational people and we are mostly you know we are generation of technology so like this kind of stuff like religion is not for our generation that's why uh, we are trying to have to make a revolution and we stand up against our government to say just stop it we don't want this kind of rules yeah you know and I believe that uh, our uh, our government, I mean the re the regime of Iran, they use 
Islam and basically hijab as a wall, like Berlin Wall. You know, if you broken or you destroyed this wall, they don't have nothing to to show that we are Islamic country. You know, mm -hmm. when you remove hijab from uh, for the, from the people, what do you have to present yourself as Islamic country? What do you have really? Nothing. Mm. It's interesting because yeah. we were speaking with Rashid before. You were telling me how you saw the pictures from Iran before the revolution. I was I was shocked. I was like, this is a different uh, country. These all these pictures are faked. And then they were like, no, this is how it was. I saw pictures in the bars, in the streets, Europe, like completely different. And how, I was shocked more, how could they completely turn it around and make it like this now, where basic rights for everyone are like zero? You know, as uh, if you hear into the previous conversation with Sheila, also Sheila mentioned that uh, the previous revolution with Shah, mm. you know, they are a leading country with a really educational people, you know, who has a position in mm. our, uh, our government or our uh, country. They, they really know, they had education mm. and they really know what they have to do. But this uh, uh, Islamic mm. Republic uh, stuff, they, they don't have education. Even they, they're in their own religion because if you are going for example if you really want to um, like lead a country by uh, Islamic rules or people for example my mom she's Muslim okay. you know she's old she's Muslim she's she's practicing Islam but she also teaching us how to be kind how to behave or how to have like um, how to believe in God as you want, you know? We are Muslim, of course, most of the Iranian people, let's say they are Muslim, but we don't have problem with Islam. We don't have problem with uh, somebody who likes hijab or who love to wear hijab. We don't have this kind of problem. We have problem with Islam and hijab because they are, they are used, I mean, the government use Islam as a weapon to kill people, to kill our people. That's why we are, we are like against Islam, mm -hmm. but it's not Islam, it's yeah. about the government and the, the rules that they are choosing uh, from Islam. It's the way they are using this yeah. Islam to... So because it's not Islam, it's just yeah. they are using Islam to do whatever they want and they say that it's rated mm. in Quran, but mm. just read Quran is not yeah and there are other countries islamic yeah, yeah, countries yeah, yeah, yeah. they don't have these rules like people women can have like rights and they can do a lot of stuff that in iran you cannot do uh, yeah for example go to dubai yeah you can they, there is a concert yeah. for yeah. so what about iran we don't have concert even for example our singer are in a prison because they are singing about just remove your hijab or re or let your hair ha have a little bit wind, so it's just beautiful, mm -hmm. yeah. But they are in a prison. Mm. So yeah. it's obvious that there is like this gap between the government and the young people, the one you said educated people. So because maybe me and Sonia we don't have connections with people there, you know, you still know people who live there and they give you like updates. Mm -hmm. Can you like paint the picture for us, like from day to day life? How how are they like the struggles? How do they live with this regime? Yeah. Again, if I want to speak about like my generation, I can say, for example, I, I study art in my, uh, in my country. I study graphic design, directing for animation, uh, and I'm, uh, I was kind of working in theater. But imagine right now, we don't have a school for theater. We don't have uh, a special for girls. But maybe we have a little bit mm. uh, like wider uh, way for boys but for girls, it's just nothing. They mm -hmm. block everything. You know, we don't have we don't have singer. We don't mm -hmm. have kind of writer. You know, because even if you are writer and you write something, they're gonna censor that for sure. So we have actor in a prison. You know, so basically they mm -hmm. stopped and they going to change 
our culture and our behavior, our mentality, uh, in a way, they are teaching us in a school, you know? But for the uh, older generation, they can't teach us in a school because there is no source after that. So you have to read book or newspaper or something. It was the only source that you have. But for my generation, we have internet. So you cannot tell us we wear uh, like me, you know, you cannot say just wearing chador and after that you are in a paradise, you know, it's not possible and it's not believable for a new generation because they can see like different people, different mentality, different uh, style, different lifestyle also, different topic for education in internet. So you cannot uh, like limit people right now and you cannot feed them with your mentality because they are we have technology right now so you can just search and be whatever you want Ellie it's almost the anniversary of the death of Max Amini and when I think about those events being honest one of the first images that comes to my mind is you cutting your hair not only cutting many women were cutting you basically shaved your head publicly uh, in Athens at Syntagma Square. And th this really stayed with me as this commitment because I saw how dedicated you were to this cause. It was not, it was no bullshitting for social media. It, it was a real commitment to the cause. You stay active. I see you at protests for every community that struggles and strives for freedom. How, how is your engagement as an activist that lives outside Iran, what what is this movement here? Like, wh what are you doing? What is this movement doing? And what do you think is possible to actually achieve from far away? Uh, you know, I, I remember that when I, I shaved my hair, so there is different, re different uh, feedback that I get. Somebody, they say, you are doing that because of social media, you wanted to be famous. But on other side, when I see myself in a television at night after I shaved my hair, I was front of television, I say, who is this girl? <laughs> you know, because I was in a self-defense class and I my weakness was, you have to yell, but I couldn't, really, yeah. You couldn't yell? Yes, it was my weakness. So for me, it was like, who I am? How I, I'm yelling like this, how is possible I'm yelling like this front of many, many people, how is possible? It was shocked also for me, but when I, I thinking about that, and I found the reason, I discovered a reason at least for myself. Imagine it was the only time that the world, first level, see Iran and the problem that we face as an Iranian. And then it the, was the first time world say, women of Iran, what do you need? What's, go, what's happening to you? Because every time I'm going to asylum series and say, I'm a, I'm a new refugee and I need your help. They said, why you are coming here? You don't have war in your own country. And I was remembered that one of the social uh, worker in the camps telling me, if I was you, I wearing more hijab and I stay in my country. And I really want to tell her, see, if you wearing more hijab, you are not safe in my country. Yeah. You know, because it's not a hijab, it's not even, for example, again, Shira say that is a revolution led by women. Yes, mm -hmm. yes, it is. But also women, they are not speaking about themselves only. They are speaking about human rights. It is not only about women rights, you know, mm -hmm. it's about human rights. Because we don't have, you know, women, men doesn't have, even animal doesn't have right to be alive in Iran. Yeah. 
Uh, I was reading this book called Reading Lolita in Tehran by Azir Nafisi. I will give it to you. I have it. And you could see she was like an English literature teacher before the revolution. And you could see the shift of the mentality because for us it's like a revolution, that's it, everything changed. She used to see like the change in everyday life in the university. Don't study Shakespeare, don't do this, don't mm -hmm. do that. And it's amazing how she takes you like step by step, how they change everything. And now it is like this. Because I was wondering like how did it come like this? I was shocked. But by reading this book, it's like amazing. Now she's like in the US. I wanted to talk to Sheila about it, but I forgot to mention. You know, I remember that when I was in the... Uh I was in a university and I started uh, my my mentor told me if you want to uh, improve your uh, skills for the drawing you have to draw everything that you see mm -hmm. so I was I was starting to draw my uh, teacher uh, in university and he's she's wearing hijab mm. completely hijab I mean she's wearing chador and I was I didn't have a good hijab like Mahsa Amini okay. in mm -hmm. a university so she kicked me out what? For three months, because she's thinking that I'm kidding her, because I'm drawing her with hijab. What? And she kicked me out from the uh, university, and she said she's kidding me, but I wasn't. I was drawing her. So even with hijab, you were not allowed to draw her? Yeah. <sighs> That's a lot. This is... Uh, this is really interesting how people actually like see themselves within society, right? How much uh, proper they have to be viewed by the society with those norms and how much fear and injects. I was really curious how it happened that from this super liberal and free society of yeah. the 70s, uh, Iran became this uh, this country, this oppress oppressive regime. And it happened basically very fast. So I was especially interested in, in hijab and the proper clothing. And it was really shocking to me that the rules on proper clothing and hijab were introduced almost right after the revolution uh, took place. So already like a month or two months after yeah. there, were, there was a decree about proper clothing for women. And a uh, few, only a few years later, if, uh, I believe in 83 or 84, the decree of Khomeini was published that women should be wearing hijabs, not only in public places, but basically um, overall. And if they do not obey this rule, they will be whipped. Yeah. And the punishment is 74 whips for not wearing a hijab. Yeah. I read that it's not really always executed, that mostly women are being taken to prison for some time. But I don't know. Uh, it's happening also. So people, really, women are whipped. They're, they're, yeah. They're getting lashes. My, my best, best, best friend. Uh, so they don't have a hijab. Mm -hmm. Good hijab, I mean. So police catch three of them. So they are three sisters. Mm -hmm. And they went to the police station. They beat uh, them. And then I will, um, and after that they leave them uh, to, they leave them mm -hmm. to come home. And we have to bring them to the hospital. And in the hospital, they don't believe us. It's because they don't have hijab. Because if you are drunk and police catch you in the street, they, gone, they are doing the same thing. And, but for hijab, it was the first time. The so they whipped them? Yes. With it was like 80. 80. 80. Yeah, 80. Zero. For a woman. Can you imagine? No, I, re I really they, cannot. They back, it was completely open. They have to do bondage all the time for a month, maybe more. I remember this time. So I see with my eyes, you know, so it's happening. Even mm -hmm. in a new time, in, in these days. It, it's extremely disturbing Like for women in the West where we're fighting to, um, you know, for our rights at uh, workplaces mm -hmm. to be paid fairly and so on. It's a completely different level of the freedoms that Iranian women or Afghan women are fighting for. Completely different uh, level. But I would like to ask you, after all of those protests uh, in Iran, 
did anything change? Like, is there any progress? So I read that, for example, the mm, the morality guard is not that present on the streets. I know that they were taking off the streets a little bit after the death of Maximini. Apparently, they wanted to cool it's down. It's getting worse. Sharia. It's getting worse every day, especially right now because we are really close to the anniversary of Mahsan Amini. So uh, it's like we have morality police and also we have a different kind of uh, morality police. We call them Basij and there is another group is come. Uh, they are brand new for officially brand new. I mean, so they say n- they are agent for Amre Ben Maruf and Nahyan Monkar. I don't know what ah, is yeah, that yeah, in yeah, part yeah, is, is Arabic. Yeah, yeah. you it, can it yeah, translate. Yeah, I think it means like uh, like to stop people who doing bad things and praise the people who are doing good. It's a police. They even have it in Saudi Arabia also. So they give. Uh, so the government give uh, many, many, many people this right. If you see somebody doesn't have hijab, you can do whatever you want with, the, yeah. with them. You know, whatever you want. You have right to, do, you, to kill them. You know, you ha- they give them right to even kill people, kill people because of hijab. So it's for Western women, uh, it's completely unheard of that such a, I, I'm going to like, the quotation mark here like small thing can actually bring people against people that it's not only the government and their imaginary um, way of how people should behave but it can also put like members of society against each other and I can imagine that it also brings members of the family against each other you know they are kind of they are doing that all the time Uh, I mean Science, they become a government for Iranian people. They are doing that and they are teaching people to do that kind of with to make they because if Iranian people are united, is like real, they are enemy of the government and government mm-hmm. know that. So they are trying to uh, make people against each other and they are starting first with Afghan people, with Iranian. So, mm-hmm. you know, they oh. are uh, starting to teach us, uh, not, not teach us, but kind of is teaching us, you know, bearing yeah. yeah, thank you, Rashid. They, so you are different with Afghan women, uh, Afghan people, you know, but mm-hmm. we are not because we are, th- we have the same language, we are living together, we are, we, we, can, we have the same culture kind of, you know, we are speaking, we are, we, we know, our pro- they know our problem, we know their problem. Mm-hmm. So they are starting to say, okay, Afghan, Iran. And then they see that they are really friends. You cannot, uh, you know, separate from each other. So they are starting different reason. Baluch people. Mm-hmm. Then they say Kurdish people. They mm-hmm. say Sunni or, you know, they mm-hmm. just trying to, to make people separate from each other. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's just brainwash. Mm-hmm. Because, like, they know if people, like, put hand in hand, they can overcome them very easy. Yeah, they are free. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you, like, your opinion about, is there a chance that Iran will get rid of this, like, tyranny and become free? And, like, how? You mean, like, with protests or, like, with a new revolution that can change everything? You know, (laughs) even in a protest, always, every day, we can just say, one solution revolution mm-hmm. you know we always yeah. yelling that in the street because strongly i believe that nothing changed with this government mm-hmm. you know and we have to fight against the government and uh, we are actively fighting against the government and this kind of rules science we born you know because yeah. when you mm-hmm. You can't. You don't have right to speak up, or you don't have right to to wear what you want to wear. So it's basically fight every day. But I believe this generation says that enough is enough, and we are fighting with you until if the result is death, we are going to die. Mm-hmm. It's okay, but we we gonna save new generation. 
Mm-hmm. We're gonna save new future because as you can see, they are like doing chemical gas with the, yeah. p- um, like uh, schools of uh, girls. So they are destroying uh, the new generation. So they are mother of yeah. future, yeah? Mm-hmm. So they are going to kill them. So I believe that we are mm-hmm. going to win. Mm-hmm. Of course, not soon, but yeah. And like you could see, like these people are so crazy, they don't care. I read something from when the protest last year happened. Uh, so that's he's uh, Mahmoud Salari, he's like the deputy culture minister for artistic affairs. Look <laughs> what he says after the protest I am not a representative of the artist, I am a representative of the government of the Islamic Republic. And then he says, the ministry is not responsible for artists who seek their own artistic values, adding that the, p- the department does not back artists who would act against the, polici- the policies of the Islamic Republic. So even the minister of the culture, he doesn't want to protect artists. So mm-hmm. I don't know. Really, because really as, m- as Sheila said, they are not education people for their position. You know, yeah. they are just choosing by like different relationship or they are like they have family member in a government so you know that's why ellie you touched upon a very interesting uh, topic because we constantly say that it's about the ge- new generation the young generation that fights for their um freedoms i, I saw uh, those images of older women walking and waving their hijabs right after uh, masamini died uh was this just like one episode and there were not that many uh, of them? Uh, and the other thing I'm interested in, how is it in relation, uh, how are the relations actually within families, you know? Like younger generation versus older generation, are there any support for those protests within uh, within this older generation? Because I I also heard from one journalist that this young generation, your generation, blames the generation of your parents for how uh, Iran looks like right now. Yes, actually, I was one of the <laughs> blamer that uh, I'm. I blame all the time my my father, my parents, and the uh, previous generation. We are blaming the previous generation because they they came with a like. Mm, different mentality because uh, you know they are coming uh, for the uh, they are for the generation that there is no internet you know they were they wanted to have like pray God have a like simple life and then that's it you know but this new, new generation I mean me or my generation or after me is not like this you know we are connected to the world how is possible to just come back from the world and and also when there is a possibility you can see other life and other style of life and other uh, thing how you want to stay in your bubble you know so you have to fight for your future that's why I'm here because I cannot do that alone in my country so I leave it at the end I would like to quote what is written on Maxas Amini's tombstone It says, beloved Gina, that was her Kurdish name, you will not die. Your name will become a code. So whatever happens to those protests, her name has already become a code for this and a symbol of those protests. With this thought, we're going to finish this episode. I would like to thank everybody for participating in um, making, creating this episode. Thank you very much f- to Sheila Omi. Thank you very much, Ellie, for uh, <laughs> joining us as, as a guest on this podcast. Thank you very much, Rashid, uh, for co hosting with us. Uh, to our production team, the director of this episode, Sudef Aslolach, uh, our production team, um, Davut Nuri and Majid Bakshi, to the producer and a mentor, Douglas Herman. My name is Sonia Nanjik Herman, and we will see you very soon uh, on episode two of our podcast. It always comes in every two weeks.
I wanted to say I completely forgot mm -hmm. that I'm wearing a t-shirt designed by Ellie Fazlola. Whoa. A t-shirt uh, for the Women Life Freedom Movement, which everybody can buy on Refocus Media Labs shop. We will make sure that there is a link to our shop uh, in the description of this episode. And for our ne next episode, we will continue with Iran because this is a super important topic to us as a community because so many members of Refocus community are actually Iranians. Um, and we will have another star of the Tehran series, a very bad character in the Tehran series. So uh, Vasilis Kukalani will join us uh, in two weeks time. So make sure that you check us online and you join Refocus podcast. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Woo! That, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I really, I'm so